The next investigator I chatted with was Dr. Brad Call, who commented on a number of key data sets presented in CLL and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, beginning with a study reporting encouraging results of a new agent, VOSD, an oral inhibitor of the so-called sick pathway. One of the interesting abstracts at the meeting in lymphoma was presented at the plenary session by Dr. Jonathan Friedberg from the University of Rochester. And he was the lead investigator on a phase two study looking at a novel agent called fosdimatinib disodium, FOSD for short. And FOSD is an oral inhibitor of SYK, S-Y-K, which stands for splenic tyrosine kinase. So it's known that some B-cell lymphomas rely upon tonic signaling through the B-cell receptor, and this signaling through the B-cell receptor is required for survival in these lymphomas. And the signal gets amplified through the sick molecule, which makes it a rational target for drug development in lymphomas. And so this group of investigators had done a phase one study in 13 patients in which they established a phase two dose of 200 milligrams POBID, and the dose-limiting toxicity was neutropenia. So then they launched a fairly large phase two trial in relapsed refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they were looking for a mix of histologies. And so they ended up in the trial with 23 patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, 21 patients with follicular lymphoma, and 24 patients with other B-cell lymphomas, including 11 with CLL, SLL, and 9 with mantle cell. And the patients were generally, as you might expect, very heavily pre-treated with a median of five prior regimens. And what was noteworthy is that the therapy was very well tolerated. There was some myelosuppression noted with the agent. In the trial of 68 patients, there were four episodes of febrile neutropenia and eight episodes of dose modifications as a result of myelosuppression in two cases of increased liver function tests, which were reversible with cessation of the agent. But no major toxicities noted. And from an efficacy standpoint, there was certainly a promising signal For example, in the cohort of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, an objective response rate of 21% was noted. In the cohort of patients with follicular lymphoma, an objective response rate of 10% was noted. In the group of patients with CLL-SLL, an objective response rate of 54% was noted. Now, mind you, there were only 11 patients, so this is a very small number, but certainly a signal of activity. And then an objective response rate in mantle cell of 11%. And the median response duration is exceeding five months at the time of the presentation. One of the interesting things they noted in the CLL cohort was a flare in the white blood cell count or in the peripheral blood lymphocytosis. So they might have a patient whom they started on this therapy, and what they would notice is that the lymph nodes would start decreasing in size, and as they did the peripheral blood lymphocytosis would increase fairly dramatically in a few patients. And I believe in one of the patients that approached 400,000 before it started eventually coming down. So there seemed to be sort of a compartment shift of tumor cells from lymph nodes into the peripheral blood before the cells actually started to die off. But as long as they continued the therapy, the patients would eventually respond. Now, this is a TKI? This is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, right targeted against this particular tyrosine kinase sick, correct? And did they see any other side effects or toxicities? A couple of patients had hypertension. 
one patient had mucositis, but for the most part, there were no significant toxicities from this therapy. Now, what's the thinking now strategically in terms of moving this forward? Well, I think they have samples collected on patients who participated in this trial. And like with other targeted therapies, what you'd really like to do is figure out which patients are likely to respond to this. So an open question and a fair question is the following. Is this drug actually working through the sick molecule and the sick pathway? And so it'd be really nice to show that, to demonstrate that. And there are correlative studies that are underway trying to prove that. Because if you could prospectively identify patients who have overexpression of the B-cell receptor signaling leading to activation through the sick pathway, now you've got a group that's highly selected that ought to be a good target for this therapy. So that's job one is to figure out who are the responders and who aren't and why. And then job two would be to sort out, you know, rational combination therapies based upon perhaps overlapping biochemical pathways. There might be other TKIs or other small molecule inhibitors that would be rational combinations with this. So very early, obviously, a phase two study, but it's a good example of rational drug development based upon preclinical data suggesting that this would be a good target to exploit in B-cell lymphomas. Sort of along the same lines, Friedman et al. presented a paper, Abstract 236, a placebo-controlled study looking at patient-specific immunotherapy with I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but you can talk about it. I'm not sure how to pronounce it either. Well, the nickname is ID-KLH. <laughs> so this was a very large randomized phase three study sponsored by the Favreau Corporation, and they had a proprietary technology in which they could make patient-specific vaccines. So every patient's B-cell lymphoma expresses a unique B-cell receptor, has a unique idiotype, And by collecting tumor samples from every patient that enrolled in this trial, they would try to make a custom vaccine for each patient. And then the vaccine or a placebo would be injected subcutaneously back into the patients to see if it would prolong remissions after they had been SADA reduced with single-agent rituximab. So the trial was for patients with follicular lymphoma, and the trial actually allowed treatment-naive patients or relapsed refractory patients. And interestingly, at the end, they ended up with about 80% of the patients who were treatment naive, 20% who were in the relapsed refractory category. And then all the patients that enrolled would receive four weekly doses of rituximab. And as long as they had no progression after the rituximab, they would be randomized. So if a patient achieved a CR, a PR, or stable disease, they would be randomized. So that ended up with 349 patients being randomized to either the id-KLH or placebo. And then the administration schedules, they would get these injections monthly for six months, and then every other month for six months, and then every three months until disease progression. And with the injection of the vaccine or the placebo, they would receive GMCSF as an immune booster for four days with each injection. So it turned out there was a small number of patients in whom they could not make vaccine for technical reasons, 28 patients, and they did some stratification in the analysis, treatment naive versus relapsed refractory, and then whether the patient responded to the rituximab or had stable disease. And so the final results of this study were presented at the meeting, and what I can tell you, the bottom line is that the vaccine conferred no clinical benefit, unfortunately, to the patients. The median time to progression in the 
id KLH arm was nine months versus 12 months in the placebo arm. So there was actually a statistically significant time to progression advantage in the placebo arm. And they did some post hoc analysis, and it turned out that by random chance, there were more high risk flippy patients that ended up in the placebo arm. So they went ahead and corrected or adjusted for flippy prognostic factors. And again, the results were not significant in terms of a time to progression difference. So even when adjusted for flippy, there was no benefit for the vaccine in this group of patients. Did you find the results of this surprising or kind of what you expected? Well, I guess, you know, I was a little surprised. I was hoping that the vaccine strategy would pan out in follicular lymphoma. It seems like a good disease to target for vaccine strategies because it's usually fairly indolent and slow moving. And these patients have unique antigens on their tumor surface, and we can identify those and one can make vaccines against those. So intellectually, it seemed like a good disease to move forward with a vaccine strategy. And so it's disappointing that the vaccine strategy did not pan out. And this is now the second negative randomized clinical trial looking at a vaccine strategy in follicular lymphoma. And there's one other study that will be reported probably sometime in the next year or so. But I think there's a chance that this heralds really the end of an era, which is vaccine development in follicular lymphoma. With two negative randomized clinical trials, I have a hard time seeing how vaccine development is going to move forward in follicular lymphoma. And I think we're going to have to really put our energies in other strategies, probably. I'm trying to think about where, because it's been attempted in solid tumors also, I'm trying to think about where vaccines have worked, period. You know, there's probably still some hope in prostate cancer and melanoma, but there's nothing positive yet that I'm aware of. And so if I was a young investigator, I'm not sure this is the field I would choose for my career development. What about the paper by Owen O'Connor looking at the PROPEL study? So this was a study looking at a novel agent called pralitrexate in relapsed refractory peripheral T-cell lymphoma. Peripheral T-cell lymphoma is a notoriously difficult form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Frontline treatments don't work terribly well, and when you get into the relapsed refractory setting, there's really very few treatments that are highly effective. So this drug, pralitrexate, is a novel targeted antifolate drug. It enters the cells by the reduced folate carrier, and this molecule appears to be relatively overexpressed in cancer cells and in lymphoma cells. And then once this molecule enters the cell, it's polyglutamated, which results in intracellular retention of the molecule, and then it allows it to inhibit the folate metabolism pathway, which could then lead to problems with DNA synthesis and cell death. I guess you could consider it a fancy version of methotrexate. And this was the pivotal trial for this agent. So it was a multi-center phase two, and the administration schedule was to give the pralitrexate intravenously weekly for six straight weeks, within a week off, and then repeating the cycles. And the dose was 30 milligrams per meter squared. And patients received vitamin B12 and folic acid supplementation. And this is to help try to minimize problems with megaloblastosis and mucositis. Peripheral T-cell lymphoma encompasses a variety of histologic subtypes, and that's exactly what they had in this trial. They had a total of 115 patients eligible for analysis, fairly heavily treated group with three prior treatments, and 53% of the patients were refractory to some prior line of therapy, so not a very favorable patient population. And of that group of 115, 109 are a valuable 
And so what this drug showed was an overall response rate of 27% with a complete response rate of 10%, which is actually not bad for this patient population. I think if you've got a novel agent, a single agent with close to a 30% response rate in this patient population, I think that's an encouraging signal of activity. The responses typically happened fairly quickly, and the median response duration at the time of this report was 180 days. The toxicities are modest. When you look at grade 3-4 toxicities, 32% of the patients had grade 3-4 thrombocytopenia. About 20% would get fairly significant mucositis and neutropenia. So there is some toxicity associated with the agent, but it appears to be acceptable, an acceptable level of toxicity. So I thought this was a promising result, a promising agent in a group of patients with a notoriously difficult disease. Because it's the pivotal trial, I believe these results will be submitted to the FDA for approval, and I don't know you know, what to predict about that, and I don't know what the predetermined bar of success was, but I would hope that based upon these results that this agent might get approved for this indication. Where do you think this agent will fit in if it is approved? Well, I think as a single agent, if you had a patient with a relapsed peripheral T-cell lymphoma who is not going to a intensive therapy like a stem cell transplant, this could be considered as a second-line therapy. This could be considered as a cytoreductive strategy to get patients to a stem cell transplant. And then presumably the drug will be studied in combinations with other agents, and perhaps we can get a combination in which the activity is even better. So I see lots of potential for this agent. What are the other agents right now that are being used that might be combined with it? As a single agent, gemcitabine is a pretty effective drug in T-cell lymphomas, and I think that would be a reasonable combination. ONTAC has reasonable activity in T-cell lymphomas. Pentastatin, those are the three that jump to mind as drugs that might be good things to study in combination with pralotrexate. There were several papers I wanted your take on looking at lenalidomide. First, the study by Zinzani looking at this agent in mantle cell. Lenalidomide is an interesting agent and is showing promising activity in multiple myeloma and is getting a lot of study in different non-Hodgkin's lymphoma subtypes and Hodgkin's disease as well. And this abstract was a subset analysis from an international phase two study looking at lenalidomide in relapsed refractory aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. And this particular abstract focused on the mantle cell patients that had been enrolled in that trial. So one of the challenging issues with lenalidomide is the optimal dose and schedule. And there's you know lots of different doses and schedule strategies out there. And for this particular study, they used a dose of 25 milligrams orally daily every 21 days. Cycles repeated every 28 days, so patients would get a seven-day break from therapy with each cycle. And the treatment was to be continued until progressive disease or unacceptable toxicity. So when they pulled the mantle cell patients out of this trial and looked at them as a distinct subtype, there were 39 patients total. And pretty typical mantle cell patient population, the median age was 66. Median number of prior therapies was three, so moderately heavily pretreated. And what they observed in this trial was an overall response rate of 41%, and of those, 13% were complete responses, and 26% of the patients had stable disease. And the median progression-free survival was seven months in the trial, and the response duration was not reached at the time of the presentation. Those are pretty promising efficacy results. The 
Toxicity was moderate, I would say. For example, 51% of the patients experienced grade 3, 4 neutropenia, and 10% of those resulted in neutropenic fevers. 25% of the patients had grade 3, 4 thrombocytopenia, and 10% had grade 3, 4 fatigue. And 15% of the patients had to discontinue the therapy due to adverse effects. So when I look at these results, I think, wow, this is a very active agent for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, although the toxicity is moderate, at least moderate, with 15% of patients discontinuing and 51% of the patients getting grade 3, 4 neutropenia. And so it makes one wonder, again, is this the optimal dose? Is this the optimal schedule? Perhaps a lower dose could get similar results without the same kind of toxicity. And so I think more study is needed to really pinpoint where this drug will fit in in mantle cell lymphoma and in other forms of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but it clearly has activity as a single agent and promising activity as a single agent. Where do you see this heading in terms of research? Are there combinations being looked at right now? I think the next, there are combinations. For example, I am aware of a proposal in the NCCTG, which is one of the cooperative groups, looking at combining lenalidomide with RCHOP for untreated mantle cell lymphoma. So there's an interesting combination. I'm aware of several protocols in development which look at administering lenalidomide at a lower dose as a post-remission maintenance strategy in mantle cell lymphoma. So patients would go through some form of intensive SADA reduction, achieve remission, and then go on a low dose of lenalidomide, perhaps 10 milligrams a day or 15 milligrams a day or something like that in an effort to really extend remission duration. I think that's a very highly attractive strategy using it in that way. So I think there's lots of different ways that this drug needs to be studied in mantle cell lymphoma, and I have no doubt that it'll find a role in there somewhere, whether it should be used in combination with chemotherapy or as a post-remission strategy or be reserved as a single agent for relapsed refractory disease. I think those are all open questions and all areas in need of further investigation. The company that makes lenalidomide is initiating their pivotal trial looking to achieve approval for single-agent lenalidomide and relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, and that study is just getting underway around the United States and possibly even at some international sites. Anything new in terms of the mechanism of action of this agent, which you know, you're starting to see in all kinds <laughs> of different situations. I'm still trying to figure out how it works. Yeah, I still have not seen anything compelling that would provide a whole lot of insight in how this drug is actually killing tumor cells. So your guess is as good as mine right now. Do we know anything about sort of the immune effects that maybe could give us a hint about what's going on? Well, I think there's a strong possibility that the drug is having not only effects on the tumor cells themselves, but on the microenvironment of the tumor. And it seems pretty clear from preclinical studies that if you disrupt tumor cells from their microenvironment, you make them easier to kill, whether it be with other agents or they'll just die of spontaneous death by apoptosis. So disruption of the tumor from its microenvironment is a viable strategy, and this may be one of the ways lenalidomide is having its activity. Do you think that this agent is a consideration outside of protocol setting right now in a patient with mantle cell? Absolutely. I have given it myself to patients off study with relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, although 
Getting the drug paid for is quite a challenge. For example, I had a patient in whom the drug was clearly working and we're able to get one cycle in, but then the insurance company stepped in and said, you can't do this, and it was not affordable for that patient to continue. So that was very disappointing. And it's really sort of a third-party payer by third-party payer variable. And I know examples where patients have been able to get it paid for and others haven't. But I think as more of these abstracts and small papers are published, that gives physicians and patients more ammunition when they're dealing with their carrier because it's clear the drug has activity in this disease. And so I think absolutely it is an option for patients with relapsed mantle cell lymphoma off study right now. What about the paper by Craig Reeder at all, Abstract 1560, also looking at lenalidomide and mantle cell? This paper was a subset analysis from two phase two studies, which looked at single agent lenalidomide in relapsed aggressive lymphomas. And what they did is they pulled the mantle cell patients out, but then they pulled out the mantle cell patients who had had prior bortezomib because bortezomib is approved for relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. So they wanted to get a signal of activity in patients who had had and failed bortezomib. And so they found 14 patients who met this criteria. And this was a poster presentation at the meeting. Same dose and schedule as in the Zanzani trial, 25 milligrams a day for 21 days off a week and then repeated until progression or unacceptable toxicity. This was, again, a heavily pretreated group of patients, and they had all had prior bortezomib, and 50% of them or seven of them were refractory to their bortezomib. And of the 14 patients in this analysis, eight of them achieved objective responses to the lenalidomide. So that's an overall response rate of 57%. Of those eight responses, three were complete and five were partial. The follow-up was really too short in this presentation to make any comments upon response duration or time to progression, but it's obviously a promising signal to see that kind of activity in bortezomib failures. The toxicity was similar to what we saw in the Zanzani abstract. Half the patients had grade 3-4 neutropenia, 21% had grade 3-4 fatigue. So again, the toxicities can be significant with this agent, and further study to optimize the dose and schedule are, I think, warranted. It seems like, at least in these couple studies and a couple more we're going to talk about, that maybe the toxicity is a little bit more than what's seen with myeloma. Do you think maybe that's a reflection of them treating patients to sort of beat up bone marrow? It's certainly possible, and not knowing the myeloma literature as well in terms of how many lines of therapy those patients have had and things like that. But as you can see in these mantle cell studies, most of these patients had been through three or four lines of therapy, and undoubtedly a lot of those were intensive lines of therapy. So it's quite possible that a lot of these patients have an impaired bone marrow reserve, which is making administration of lenalidomide more difficult. The results in myeloma are striking, obviously, and that gives us a lot of hope that you know, we can take advantage of these same strategies, especially in the lymphomas that need the most help, like mantle cell lymphoma and T-cell lymphomas. We also saw some data looking at diffuse large B-cell lymphoma presented by Myron Chuchman, abstract 268, also looking at lenalidomide. Can you talk about that? Right. This is the same study that Dr. Zinzani presented, but again, a subset analysis. So they pulled the patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma histology out of the study and analyzed those separately for the ASH presentation. So the entire study had something like 200 patients, and of those, 107 had diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and 34 patients were too early to be included in the analysis. So we end up with 73 patients that are analyzed in the presentation. So these are patients with relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, 
an older group, median age 67, median number of prior therapies was three. And as you might expect, about half of them had had prior stem cell transplant and had relapsed after that. So not a very favorable group of patients. What we see here is that the single agent activity for lenalidomide is not quite as promising in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma as, say, it is in mantle cell. So what they observed was a 29% overall response rate, but only four of those were complete responses, and the median progression-free survival was only about two months, and the median response duration was only about four and a half months. Toxicities were similar to what was seen in the mantle cell study. They had 31% grade 3, 4 neutropenia. They had two episodes of grade 2 confusional state, which was reversible with discontinuation of the medicine. So that's a little concerning. And they had two episodes of acute renal failure, which was also reversible with discontinuation of the medicine. So when I look at this report, I'm not quite as optimistic about single-agent lenalidomide in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma as I am in mantle cell lymphoma. As a single-agent, it doesn't have as much activity And I think it is an option for patients with relapsed large cell lymphoma, especially elderly patients, because it's an oral therapy, which is obviously attractive. But the single agent activity is limited, of course, and perhaps not quite as promising as it is in mantle cell. Although, you know, we're always looking at situations in oncology where you see these studies, heavily pretreated patients, they don't look that encouraging. One of the things I kind of look for, and I don't know whether this is right or not, is anecdotal cases. You know, you talked before about identifying people who maybe have some kind of alteration that would make them much more sensitive. And Dr. Chuchman presented this incredible case as part of his presentation of this young woman with really aggressive disease. Maybe you can comment on that because I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, so Dr. Chuchman presented a case, and it was a woman, I forget her age, but maybe in her 40s. She was 43. Yeah, and right. I think she had failed a stem cell transplant. She had very aggressive diffuse RGB cell lymphoma. And, you know, I'm sure the options for her were incredibly limited when they talked to her about participating in this trial, and she had a really beautiful response to single-agent lenalidomide. So you're absolutely right, and it's not like the drug has no activity. And so, again, I don't know if the drug will ever find approval in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but the drug is out there. And so when you're looking for off-study options for your patients with relapsed large cell lymphoma and you don't have a clinical trial option, I think this is a reasonable strategy for those patients because it is an oral agent, it's convenient, and there clearly is some activity. And so I wouldn't hesitate to give it a try in certain patients with relapsed diffuse RGB cell lymphoma. That's assuming you can get it covered, of course. Let's get back to mantle cell, and maybe you can comment on your own presentation that you did, Abstract 265. This was a phase two study that we did at the University of Wisconsin and within the Wisconsin Oncology Network, which is a group of community oncologists that we partner with for phase two studies. And we used a novel chemotherapy backbone that I call modified hyper-CVAD. This is something that we had taken from the conventional hyper-CVAD, but tried to simplify the regimen and remove some of the agents that led to a lot of the toxicity Conventional hyper-CVAD is clearly a very active regimen in mantle cell lymphoma, but there are a lot of patients who can't receive it because of the side effect profile. And so we had taken out part B of the regimen, which is the high-dose cytarabine and the high-dose methotrexate, and when we made a few alterations to part A just to shorten the length of the hospitalization, make it a little more patient-friendly. And we had done a phase two trial in Wisconsin looking at this chemotherapy backbone, and we achieved a complete remission rate of 64%, which we thought was promising. 
And so in trying to think about how we would improve upon that, an obvious choice was the incorporation of bortezomib, which now has approval in relapse mantle cell lymphoma. And so we added bortezomib to our chemotherapy backbone, and we started out at a dose of bortezomib of 1.5 milligrams per meter squared on days one and four of every 21-day cycle. And what we noted after the first seven patients was really an excessive rate of painful peripheral neuropathy, which I think is a manifestation of combining bortezomib and vincristine in the same chemotherapy regimen. And so we made a dose modification, decreasing the bortezomib to 1.3 milligrams per meter squared on days one and four, and treated seven more patients, but continued to have an excessive rate of painful peripheral neuropathy. So we made one more dose adjustment at that point, decreasing the vincristine dose to a flat one milligram instead of a flat two milligrams. And we treated the final 16 patients at that dose and schedule. And we only had one case of excessive painful peripheral neuropathy out of the last 16 patients. So we felt good about the final dose and schedule that we ended up with. As far as our results, we were encouraged by what we saw. We had 30 patients enrolled in this trial. And as a very typical untreated mantle cell patient population, our median age was 60, mostly men, mostly stage four disease with a fairly characteristic MIPI, which is the mantle cell IPI. So we had a characteristic risk distribution. I don't think our patients were more or less favorable than other studies out there. Our overall response rate to the induction regimen was 90%. We had three patients who progressed while on the induction therapy and 27 who achieved an objective response. And of those, 23 were complete responses. So our complete response rate was 77%, partial response rate 13%. So we thought that was encouraging and perhaps looks a little better than the 64% complete response rate that we had achieved with our prior study, but I'll note that that's not a statistically significant difference because we're comparing two small studies to each other. Our follow-up isn't very long. The median follow-up is 23 months at the time of our presentation, and our two-year progression-free survival is 73%. And our overall survival is over 90%. So again, we think that's an encouraging result, a promising result. But I don't think we really have enough follow-up to be completely confident in those numbers yet. And we need a little more time to see if those numbers hold up to know if the addition of bortezomib to the chemotherapy regimen is really adding anything. You know, is there enough of a signal there to take it forward in a randomized phase three? And fortunately, we're going to have two other phase two trials to look at before we have to make that decision because we took this exact regimen, which we call VCR-CVAD, the VC stands for Velcade. We took that exact regimen and we have just completed a 72-patient phase two trial in the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, but really the last patient just went on that study a couple of months ago, so we don't yet know the results from that. And the Southwest Oncology Group has combined bortezomib with the RCHOP regimen in untreated mantle cell lymphoma. So we'll have two cooperative group trials in which we can look at the data on the overall response rate and the complete response rate, and we can compare that to historical controls to try to make a determination of whether bortezomib is really adding anything to the chemotherapy backbone. And then I think we'll really have to make a decision if we want to commit to a randomized phase three trial and really sort out whether bortezomib improves the response rates and the progression-free survival in a clinically significant way. I'm curious how you manage these patients in general in a non-protocol setting right now. It's very controversial. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know what's the best strategy for untreated mantle cell lymphoma, but 
I think over the last year, year and a half, there have been a couple of presentations of note. One's come out in publication, which is a trial from a Nordic cooperative group. And the way I'm approaching this now, Neil, is to start segregating the mantle cell patients into a younger group and an older group. And the younger group are the group who are candidates for more intensive strategies. So an intensive strategy would be like conventional hyper-CVAD as done by the group at MD Anderson, or some kind of an aggressive SATA reduction followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. It's still not clear whether those intensive strategies are really impacting overall survival for these patients, but it looks pretty clear to me that they are producing more durable first remissions. So that's the way I'll explain it to patients. If we take you through a more intensive strategy, we can buy you a longer remission than we can if we did a less intensive strategy. So there's a trade-off for the patient. You're getting more toxicity up front, but then hopefully more reward later by achieving a longer remission and a longer time between treatments. And when patients say, how much longer, how do you answer? So I think with less intensive strategies, for example, with our modified hyper-CVAD with rituximab maintenance, we achieved a median of three years. And with some of these intensive strategies, most of the trials are getting median progression-free survivals of around five years. So I tell patients, I'm trying to buy you an extra couple years of remission with an intensive strategy. When I have older patients who are really not candidates for such intensive strategies, then I try to find a moderately intensive induction like our modified hyper-CVAD or our CHOP, and then I try to follow that up with a fairly non-toxic post-remission strategy such as maintenance rituximab, and I do that for two years. Now, again, that's not a proven strategy in terms of prolonging remission duration, There's a hint of that from some phase two studies, including our own, and there's a randomized trial in Germany going on right now that'll settle that once and for all. But that's really the state of the data in mantle cell lymphoma, and because it's a fairly uncommon disease, we just don't always have the level of evidence that you'd like to really know what's best. So you really got to make your decisions based upon the data that's out there, and this is what we have right now. What else came out at ASH that relates to this question? There was this paper, 3050 also looking at mantle cell with hyper-CVAD. This was an attempt by an Italian cooperative group to try the conventional hyper-CVAD regimen in a multi-center trial. You know, of interest at the meeting was long-term follow-up from the MD Anderson group presented by Dr. Ramagera, and they had published this in JCO several years ago. I'm talking about the MD Anderson results now showing very promising results using what I call conventional hyper-CVAD for untreated mantle cell lymphoma. So the MD Anderson group reported seven-year follow-up at this point. And what they've observed at the seven-year mark is the failure-free survival rate is 43% and the overall survival rate is 60%. So if you think of that, you know, pick five years as your landmark. More than half of their patients are remaining in remission at five years. That's a very good result in untreated mantle cell lymphoma. And then they broke it down in the poster based upon whether patients are under 65 or over 65. This is abstract 833. This is abstract 833. And when they looked at the younger patients, at seven years, the failure-free survival was 52%. So if you just look at the younger patients in the MD Anderson series, half the patients were still in remission seven years out, which again is a very good result. When you look at the older patients, and I look at the curve, it looks to me like the median failure-free survival is about three years. 
which I think we can get that kind of number with less intensive strategies. And so what I take home from Abstract 833 is that the conventional hyper-CVAD regimen is a very good strategy for younger patients. I don't think it's a very good strategy for older patients. It's too toxic, and the results are not that much better than you can get with other strategies. Now, getting back to the one you'd asked about, which is Abstract 3050, it's really an attempt to take the MD Anderson experience, which was generated in a single institution, and try to replicate that in a multi-center trial. And that's an important thing to do. I mean, the results, as you know, are always better in a single institution trial compared to what you get in a multi-center trial. And so if you really want to know how things are going to extrapolate to the community, I think it's important to look at the multi-center trial data because that's probably a more accurate reflection of what one can expect. So this Italian cooperative group enrolled 32 patients with untreated mantle cell lymphoma, and this was a young group of mantle cell lymphoma patients. I mean, the median age is 54. So that's about 10 years younger than the median. And their oldest patient was only 66. So this is a group of patients that should be able to tolerate this therapy reasonably well. And even though this was a younger group, they still had seven patients of their 32 who could not complete the treatment due to toxicity, which I think that's a high percentage. They didn't really report the overall response rate in a way that I found meaningful because they say... Well, they reported as 91%, but I'm not sure what the denominator is. In other words, if a patient came off due to toxicity, are they counting that patient as a non-responder or not? And I couldn't tell from the presentation. But when you look at their time-to-event data, they had about two years of follow-up, and their two-year failure-free survival is 75%. And that's not nearly as good as what they see in the MD Anderson series. But it is quite similar to what was reported at last year's ASH meeting by the Southwest Oncology Group, who also tried to replicate the MD Anderson experience in a cooperative group trial. And so I think what we're learning here is when you take that conventional hyper-CVAD regimen and you take it to a multi-center trial, the results are going to be good, but not as good as you see in a single institution trial. I thought that was really an eye-opener last year because the docs in practice were saying, you know, this is severely not doable in older patients, and even the younger patients have a lot of problems, and those findings were very striking. My own take on the conventional hyper-CVED regimen at the moment is I definitely don't give it to anyone over 65, and I usually don't give it to anyone over 60 sort of depends on their comorbidities. If I get a young mantle cell patient, someone who's, you know, in their early 50s, and I even see some in their 40s, I think it's a fine choice. And I think it's a reasonable choice when you get into your late 50s. But when you get into your 60s, it just is a very difficult regimen to try to take a patient all the way through. And one of the things we've talked about quite a bit, I've been involved in a lot of discussions over the last six months, looking at doing some intergroup trials in the cooperative groups. And The consensus amongst most investigators right now is that it's probably easier on an individual patient to take them through a short course of hyper-CVAD, like four cycles, and then move on to an autologous stem cell transplant. It's probably easier to do that than it is to try to go through eight whole cycles of the hyper-CVAD regimen. And so as we are trying to develop a chemotherapy backbone that we can really build upon for younger patients with untreated mantle cell lymphoma, we're opting to go with the shorter course of hyper-CVAD followed by a stem cell transplant as we think that's actually an easier route for most patients to take. 
So getting back to a question that occurs a lot more commonly in clinical practice, I'm curious about your take on the EORTC study presented, Abstract 836, looking at maintenance rituximab and follicular lymphoma. So this is updated data from a trial that has been published and really just looking at long-term follow-up. This was a large cooperative group trial done in several European centers, and it was for patients with relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma. So the patients had prior chlorambucil or CVP, and upon relapse, the patients were randomized to receive either CHOP or RCHOP, and then after responding, re-randomized to maintenance rituximab or observation. And as has been reported previously, the RCHOP was superior to the CHOP, and so the CHOP arm was closed early. And then for the question of maintenance rituxin versus observation, what the trial demonstrated was a significant progression-free survival advantage for the patients to receive the maintenance rituximab. And the way the rituximab was given in the trial was a single dose every three months for a total of two years. And when you look at the median progression-free survival from randomization, it's 3.7 years in the rituximab maintenance group versus 1.3 years in the observation group. So more than a doubling of the remission length by the application of the rituximab maintenance. Now, what they report in the abstract is they still don't see an overall survival advantage for the strategy. So we're just talking about a progression-free survival advantage right now. But the beauty of this progression-free survival advantage is it comes in a fashion which does not add a lot of toxicity because generally maintenance rituximab is well-tolerated. Although I will point out that the study does show more grade 3, 4 infections in the patients who receive maintenance rituximab. It was basically 10% versus 2.5%. And so there probably is a little bit of an issue with prolonged B-cell depletion, dropping of immunoglobulin levels, and a tendency for recurrent infections in patients receiving maintenance rituximab. But I think the clinical benefit probably outweighs the toxicity in this particular group of patients. Now, this study doesn't really answer the question that we're all most interested in right now, which is, is there a role for maintenance rituximab as part of initial therapy in follicular lymphoma if the patient has received a rituximab-containing chemotherapy regimen? That question still hasn't been answered. Fortunately, the trial that should answer the question has been completed. It's called the PRIMA trial, very large trial that has been done in Europe, and I believe there's somewhere around 1,000 patients that have been enrolled, and we're just really waiting for the outcome data right now. So right now, we still don't know if you get a new patient who has follicular lymphoma who needs treatment and you give them RCHOP or RCVP, will they achieve additional benefit with the use of two years of rituximab maintenance? We still don't know the answer to that question, but hopefully soon we will. Where are we right now with your study, the RESORT trial? The RESORT trial, which is comparing two different rituximab dosing strategies for patients with low tumor burden, indolent lymphoma, that trial is completed accrual, and it has over 550 patients enrolled. It completed accrual in August of 2008, and we're waiting for enough events to occur that we can analyze the data for the primary outcome. And what we're really looking at in the RESORT trial is time to rituximab failure. So what we're asking is, What's a better dosing strategy? Should patients get rituximab on an as-needed basis, meaning get four weekly doses, see what kind of remission you get, and that the first sign of relapse, retreat with four weekly doses, see what kind of remission you get at first relapse, 
retreat with four weekly doses and keep doing that strategy until the rituximab stops working? Or should patients get their four weekly doses of rituximab and then get rituximab maintenance on some sort of a predetermined schedule. And in our trial, we give a single dose every three months. And so what we're really trying to determine is which dosing strategy will control that patient's lymphoma for the longest period of time. And you mentioned issues in terms of safety. What are you seeing right now in the resort trial? To date, we haven't seen any signal that there's increased toxicity in one arm compared to another arm based on the dosing strategy. Any thoughts about how often or when, you know, clinically it's appropriate to use rituximab up front without chemo? I think if patients are elderly and perhaps not great candidates for cytotoxic chemotherapy, single-agent rituximab can be a very good choice. Occasionally you will get patients who absolutely positively do not want to receive chemotherapy but are willing to receive single-agent rituximab, so then it could be a good choice. And then you also have the group of patients who are the low tumor burden patients, like we studied in the resort trial. So these are patients who have no symptoms and do not have a lot of disease, and the standard of care for years has been watch and wait, which is still the standard of care. But some of those patients are very, very uncomfortable with the watch and wait strategy, and it actually becomes a quality of life issue for them from a psychologic standpoint. The watch and wait strategy for some patients really is detrimental on their quality of life. And so for those patients, single agent rituximab, I think is a reasonable strategy. The potential downside to single agent rituximab is that if you use that strategy up front, we don't know then if you get the same kind of synergy when you eventually combine the rituximab with chemotherapy. So there's the theoretical downside to using rituximab as a single agent as initial treatment. So we don't know the answer yet if that theoretical downside is a real downside or not, but that's obviously something we're interested in trying to learn as we gather more data as patients come off the resort trial and some other trials that are going on. You mentioned the question of whether or not to use maintenance in the patients getting R chemo. How do you approach this situation yourself outside of protocol setting? In general, I tend not to give maintenance rituximab after rituximab-containing chemotherapy for frontline treatment of follicular lymphoma, although I will admit I've made exceptions to that rule, and so I have done some individualization in my own practice. Nobody really knows what the right answer here is. I know in Vancouver, British Columbia, they've made maintenance rituximab the standard of care, and so obviously some investigators think it's a very reasonable thing to do as part of routine treatment, and I know other investigators who feel very strongly against it until the data is there. The way I've tried to individualize it, I've had a few patients, Neil, who were really psychologically devastated by their diagnosis to a really extreme degree. And I just knew that if I could buy them a longer remission, emphasis on the word if, it would have the potential of a quality of life benefit for that patient psychologically. Even though we don't know if it changes overall survival at all, there's a chance that it'll improve the length of that first remission. And for selected patients, that's an important goal. We have done a lot of detailed patterns of care studies in many different solid tumors. We're just starting to look at this in humanologic oncology, and it looks like a lot of docs in practice are using R-maintenance and follicular mm-hmm. lymphoma, and I don't have enough data to be really sure. Is that your impression? 
My impression is that happens quite a bit in practice. I don't know what the numbers are, but I wouldn't be surprised if in practice over half the patients out there get maintenance as part of their initial treatment. Yeah, when we threw out a case to them, 80% actually yeah, used it, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. What about the schedule of our maintenance? What are the options? And if you're going to use it, what do you generally do? I think the most important thing for physicians in practice is to remember the two-year total duration. We really don't know if it's safe to do maintenance beyond two years. And so I would avoid extending it beyond two years right now. Now, staying within that two-year parameter, I think there are three reasonable dosing strategies. And which of these is superior? I can't say. I would think all three would be reasonable. So one strategy is to give the four weekly doses every six months, four times. And that's how it was done in ECOG 1496 and how it was done in the Hainsworth studies. Another reasonable strategy is to do a single dose every three months for a total of two years. That's how it was done in the EORTC study we just talked about. And then another reasonable strategy is to do a single dose every two months for a total of two years. And it's been done that way in a few other studies, and that's based upon some pharmacokinetic data. I honestly can't say which of those is a better strategy. I don't know if we'll ever really know those answers. It might take very, very, very large trials to really sort out those sort of differences, and I'm not sure that those are the kind of questions that we're ever going to go after. What about the poster abstract 832 looking at bortezomib and rituximab in Waldenstrom's? This was a phase two study done by investigators at the Dana-Farber and a few other centers, and they used a novel combination of bortezomib at a dose of 1.6 milligrams per meter squared on days 1, 8, and 15 of each 28-day cycle repeated for six cycles, combined with rituximab at a dose of 375 milligrams per meter squared on days 1, 8, 15, and 22 given on cycles 1 and 4. And they enrolled... 37 patients who had relapsed refractory Waldenstrom's, and there were 30 patients available in the presentation, meaning they had completed at least two cycles. And again, it was a pretty heavily pretreated group with three prior regimens, and the median IgM level was 3.5 grams per deciliter. And what they observed was a partial response rate of 53% and a minor response rate of 33% for an overall objective response rate of 90%. And the median duration of response had not been reached at the time of the presentation. And probably the most interesting thing to me from the presentation was the low rate of painful peripheral neuropathy that they experienced. It's always been a concern because some patients with Waldenstrom's have problems with peripheral neuropathy. And there's a concern that that could be exacerbated by the bortezomib. But it seems pretty clear now that the weekly Dosing schedules of bortezomib seem to produce less neuropathy than the traditional day 1, 4, 8, and 11 schedule, and I think this trial validates that idea. So this was an active combination and a favorable toxicity profile, and particularly with regards to peripheral neuropathy, I thought it was favorable. Do you think that this is a combination that could be utilized outside of protocol setting? Absolutely. You know, both agents are approved, and I I think we have enough experience with these two agents now that it's a combination that could be used in practice without any concern. What about this paper, 1559, looking at an mTOR inhibitor, Temsorolimus, in mantle cell? Temsorolimus, as you know, is an agent that targets the mammalian target of rapamycin or mTOR kinase, and obviously this drug and these class of drugs are getting a lot of interest in oncology, and 
the company that makes this particular drug had sponsored a phase three randomized trial comparing Temsirolimus at two different dose levels against investigators' choice for relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. Obviously, relapsed mantle cell lymphoma is a difficult problem. There are not a wealth of really effective therapies in that setting. And so what was reported at ASH was an update of some data that they had reported at an earlier meeting. And they did a little bit of a breakdown of the data, looking at it in a little more detail. So just to summarize it, there were three groups of patients to look at. There were patients who received the Temsirolimus at 175 milligrams weekly, or patients would receive 75 milligrams weekly. So there were two different doses for the sort of the maintenance Temsirolimus. And then there was the investigator's choice, which was a whole hodgepodge of different therapies. So when they look at this study, it does seem as though the higher dose of Temsirolimus was somewhat more active. So the overall response rate for the group that received 175 followed by 75 was 22% versus 6% for the group that received Temsirolimus 175 followed by 25. So the dose did seem to make a difference. And compared to investigator's choice, the overall response rate for that group was only 2%. And when you look at duration of these responses or median progression-free survival, it is somewhat better for the Temsirolimus group. So if you just compare 175 followed by 75 to investigator's choice, the median progression-free survival improved from two months for investigator's choice to a little over five months for the Temsirolimus group. So I think it proves the principle that mTOR is a valid target in mantle cell lymphoma, and there are other drugs in this class now trying to sort out the exact role in mantle cell lymphoma. So I think you're going to see a lot more of these sorts of trials. Whether Temsirolimus gets approval for mantle cell based on this particular set of data, I don't know whether that will happen. The activity is there, but it's modest. And there are other drugs in the mTOR class, including some oral agents in development, which have some obvious advantages from a patient standpoint. Obviously, the one area where oncologists in practice are starting to get some experience with these agents, and specifically Temsirolimus is renal cell and the kind of feedback I'm getting, and it's been a pretty well-tolerated drug. And, of course, in renal cell, you have the TKIs. And so, I don't know, in terms of other options for mantle cell, in terms of progressive disease, what are the other considerations that are utilized? Well, bertizumab is obviously FDA-approved in that setting, so that perhaps that's where the bar has been set now. And then, obviously, you have different chemotherapeutic strategies that you didn't use in the front line, so platinum-based therapies or purine analog-based therapies, which have modest activity. It's a little bit of a myth, I think, in mantle cell that patients are unsalvageable at relapse. More and more, when you look at data from mature trials, even trials where patients receive... In fact, I'll show you this in a minute when we talk about the European study a trial where patients received CHOP-like therapy followed by interferon. The median progression-free survival for the frontline therapy was only about a year and a half. But if you look at the median overall survival for that group, it's over five years. So obviously the patients are able to be maintained with other therapies for a prolonged period of time. So there's obviously other things that work in mantle cell, and it's not quite as dismal, I think, as it sometimes gets portrayed. Also, I'm not really sure what the natural history of mantle cell is and whether there aren't some patients with more indolent you know, clinical courses just biologically. There definitely is that. There was a very nice paper about five years, six years ago now, 
which really looked at biological prognostic markers in mantle cell. And this group came up with what's called a proliferation signature based upon overexpression of certain genes. This was using RNA profiling. And what you can see, they basically took the survival curves and they broke it into quartiles. And 25% of the mantle cell patients, you know, were dead in a year. So there's a group with a very aggressive clinical course. And then 50% of the patients had this much more typical mantle cell course with median survivals ranging between three and five years. But then there was a group of 25% of patients in which the median survival had not been reached at seven years. And that's about exactly what I see in my practice. You know, I see about a quarter of these patients with really aggressive disease, and I see about a quarter of the patients with pretty indolent disease. And then there's about 50% in the middle that have kind of a characteristic course. Why don't we finish this out with paper 581, another study looking at mantle cell from the GILA group. So this was a presentation at ASH from the GILA group, and they had conducted a multi-center phase two trial, which looked at an intensive therapy for younger patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Basically, patients received RCHOP combined with RDHAP, and once in remission, the patients were consolidated with an autologous stem cell transplant. And the reason I find this study interesting is there have been lots of presentations in the last few years which look at results of mantle cell patients who are transplanted at a single center. And I always look at that data with a little bit of a grain of salt because there's usually a lot of selection bias there. These are patients that were young enough and healthy enough and had responded to their frontline therapy and they had done well enough to make it to a stem cell transplant and then they got transplanted. And so then these single institutions are only reporting on the group of patients that got transplanted. And not sure that is totally useful information when you're talking to a patient with a new diagnosis. So what I liked about the Gila study is it was a multi-center study, and it was reported on an intent-to-treat basis. So they enrolled 60 patients in this multi-center trial, and the patients would receive two cycles of CHOP and then a cycle of RCHOP, And I think they omitted the rituximab from the first two cycles just because they were worried about infusion reactions, is my guess. And then they received three cycles of rituximab combined with DHAP chemotherapy. And the logic there is quite a few investigators believe that there is a role for high-dose cytarabine in the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma. And so they were trying to test that theory. And then responding patients would be consolidated with an autologous stem cell transplant And they used one of two conditioning regimens, one called TAM-6 or the typical BEAM regimen. So they reported on their series of 60 patients at ASH, and it was a little bit of a younger group. Median age is 57, which is a young mantle cell group, but I'm talking specifically now about applying this to, you know, a younger patient you might see with a new diagnosis. And most of the patients got through the induction part just fine. There was some renal toxicity. Five of 60 patients had grade three to four renal toxicity, and this all happened during the RDHAP portion, so this was clearly due to the platinum agent. So of the group of 60, 49 ended up making it onto a transplant. So 11 fell out along the way. One of the patients died. One of the patients couldn't be mobilized. Four of the patients had progressive disease. Four of the patients had too much toxicity, so they weren't in good enough shape to get the transplant. Things like that happen along the way. So 49% of the patients get an autologous stem cell transplant. And when you look at the event-free survival curve from this trial, at five years, 64% of the patients are still in remission, which I think is a very, very impressive result, that more than half of your cohort 
is still in remission at five years. And this is very consistent with a recent publication from the Nordic Mantle Cell Lymphoma Study Group, which adopted a very similar strategy of giving an alkylating agent-based induction called MaxiChop, alternating with high-dose cytarabine, and then responding patients received an autologous stem cell transplant. And again, the majority of their patients, something over 60, maybe close to 70%, are still in remission at five years. So those results, in terms of the you know length of that first remission, that's a very good result in untreated mantle cell lymphoma. And so I think when you put the Nordic data together with this Gila data, you have two multi-center cooperative group trials reported in an intent-to-treat way. And when you put them together, it really supports the idea that there may be an important role for high-dose cytarabine in the induction of patients with mantle cell lymphoma and that there may be a beneficial role for an autologous stem cell transplant consolidation for mantle cell lymphoma. Now, specifically, I'm talking about younger patients. You know, both of these trials took patients up to about the age of 65. So this perhaps is not something that you would apply to patients over 65 or in their 70s, and there are a lot of mantle cell patients like that. So I wouldn't apply this data to the older group, but certainly for younger mantle cell patients, this looks like a very good strategy. Now, through indirect comparison, how do these results compare to other reported results with, for example, R-hypercevad or modified R-hypercevad, as you've done? These results look very comparable to the MD Anderson experience with conventional hypercevad. I'd say that's very similar when you look at the long-term outcome in the younger patients. And so if you were to compare one of these strategies versus just going with a straight hypercevad approach, it's hard to know which would be superior. Both strategies are very intensive. In the conventional hypercevad approach, there's no stem cell transplant. But for those of us who have used that regimen, I think going through eight cycles of conventional hypercevad is actually probably harder on a patient than going through four to six cycles of the kind of induction they used in the Nordic trial or the Gila trial and following that up with a stem cell transplant, it's probably easier for the patient to actually do the stem cell transplant. So for me, when I see younger patients, I'm going to pursue a strategy more similar to the Nordic strategy or the Gila strategy for the younger patients with mantle cell. And certainly for younger patients, these results look superior to what we have achieved with our modified hypercevad. I think our modified hypercevad approach is a very good approach for older patients. But for younger patients, probably the more intensive approach is the way to go.